You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. Today we continue our focus on reuse after the rousing call to arms from Duncan Baker Brown in our last episode. Today it's all about making it happen and how do you actually do it. And I'm Hattie's co-host George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. Imagine a world where I can't get any more new material. How do I build? That's the, the premise of a circular economy and that's why we've looked to existing buildings. How do we get materials out of buildings? And all of this comes down to material passport. So the idea with a passport is if you know exactly what that material is because it's been tagged or labelled in such a way that you're able to access information about it, then it will be able to be reused a little bit more. So in the same way that I have a passport, and if you scan my passport, you're going to see my height, my eye colour, my nationality, but also where I've travelled. That's the same premise for materials. Today we're speaking to Rachel Houlihan, AJ Sustainability Champion of the Year. Originally from Ireland, Rachel is an architect and sustainability coordinator at ORMS, where she has worked for four years. ORMS has a long track record in retrofit, and the practice's clever refurbishment of the 1974 brutalist former Camden Town Hall annex into the Standard Hotel in King's Cross was an AJ Retrofit winner earlier this year. Over the last 18 months, Rachel has worked with a cross-disciplinary team including Grosvenor Britain and Ireland, Elliot Wood Structural Engineers, Arup, and Heta Architects to develop an approach to material passports in existing buildings. Rachel also leads the UKGBC's Design for Circularity Working Group, which is currently producing a framework for disassembling buildings. Rachel, we're delighted to have you with us today. Before we delve into the circular economy and your work on material passports, can you tell us a little bit about your role as an architect and sustainability coordinator at ORMS? This is particularly timely because Architects Declare has just launched its long-awaited and very useful practice guide, a roadmap of how to work more sustainably that is applicable to any size of practice. It's available as a free download from the AD website. We'll put a link in the show notes. So Rachel, tell us about how you approach sustainability at ORMS. Thanks, Hattie, and to George for having me on, on the podcast. Probably one of the interesting things that I do is look at the sustainability challenges that we're facing with that architect and designer mindset. And my role as a sustainability coordinator is relatively recent and has been born out of a number of research pieces that we, we began last year. So when projects started slowing down, we looked at a number of areas of business and opportunities where we could actually try and research and drive some thinking forward that would make us a better practice. And I led up the sustainability piece, which has led to my work with the UKGBC. And essentially my role there is taking research and 
trying to push research forwards with this architect's mindset, but also taking that knowledge back into the practice. And I work very closely with one of our associates, Rosie, to try and disseminate the thinking that's going on in the industry because it's very fast moving and often very technical and try and make it practical so that our architects can be leading sustainability on all of the projects. And I think that's a really, really important message that we are instilling in everybody who works at ORMS. We lead by example. So when you come into a design team meeting with us, the architects around the table are the ones who are able to advocate for sustainability as strongly as they're able to advocate for their design beliefs and design principles. So making sure everybody has the access to the knowledge and the understanding of the key topics so that they can comfortably discuss these is really inherent in our approach and I think is what makes so many of our projects so successful. So how big is ORMS now? We're about 70 people. That's sort of a mixture of architects, but also our support staff. And how do you actually do this in practice when you say you're disseminating this through the practice? What does that mean? The closest involvement we get is each project gets a specific sustainability review, at least one per work stage. And we're trying to ramp these up to have even one a month because sometimes our work stages would run a little bit longer. And during those reviews, we have a sustainability toolkit that's designed to be very accessible Taking the RBA Sustainable Outcomes is what we built it around, the Sustainable Outcomes Guide, which is a really, really good reference. We took the eight topics within that and developed principles and some questions that we should be asking ourselves at each work stage. So we go through this with the team and the full team, project architect, the associate, and also the architectural assistants that might be working on the projects, and really delve into the opportunities or constraints that each project is facing. And then usually they'll have some questions, we might go away and research up a few things and and give it back to them. That's probably the best way. Equally, at sort of a higher level, we need to develop our practices response to things. So we carry out whole life carbon assessments in-house. Obviously the recent alignment work that was led by uh, Letty was brilliant because it closed a lot of gaps in the industry on how we should be assessing carbon within our buildings. So we took that information, read through it, developed our approach and have produced guidance notes for within the practice that live on an internet. So we will share them over email to say, hello, we've just launched this. And when people think, oh, I now have a question about this, usually they'll come and ask us, you know, we're in the kitchen, they'll say, oh, remember that thing that you said about carbon? Where will I find that? And we'll be able to say it's on the internet. And then we have our higher level reporting. So we did a benchmark report. We carried a series of case studies on a number of our big projects and took those findings and developed them as a a benchmark. And the intention is that moving forwards, we'll continue to benchmark our projects to make sure that we're reducing our carbon impact. So carbon has been a huge focus in the past year or so but we're now starting to expand beyond that. So looking at well-being, looking at circular economy. So are the targets that you're targeting, are those the Letty targets? And, and how's that working with the different kinds of projects that you're working on? Are some easier to hit the targets than others? The biggest challenge with targets and carbon is we don't have all the data yet. The brilliant thing about the Letty targets is actually the scope that sits behind them. And I know there was a bit of challenge in the industry. It was like, oh, you've made it easier to achieve the target. Well, actually, no, because you now have to measure much more of the building. 
Previously, you could exclude certain parts of the building. Now you're supposed to be accounting for everything. And the way you report it, the template is really granular. So it's very clear what you can or haven't reported on. But I think it's a really, really great body of work. And now we're all very focused. There was a lot of confusion previously. So I think it's very focused now and it will help us to make better decisions, informed decisions. Well, it's great that there's an ambition for high performing buildings coming from the client side as well. Yes, absolutely. And in fairness to all of our clients, they're all coming in with increasingly more ambitious briefs. Sometimes you need to explain to them what they're asking for, because I think they hear something and they say, oh, that sounds good. Let's do that. And then you say, right, well, now you know what the implications of this are going to be. But yes, I agree with you. It is the best place to start. Let's start as ambitious as possible. And maybe it's now my involvement in research, but I'm trying to use all of our projects as a test bed. So the project architects are sick of me. I'm coming in and saying, could you try out this Excel spreadsheet that I've worked up in in the working group and and give me feedback? And they're like, you know, we have a deadline on Friday. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, but it'll only take you a minute. (laughs) So trying to use projects to get that real-time feedback whatever we're building in research groups is just really useful. It's a pet peeve as an architect, you know, it's like another thing I have to do. So if whatever we're producing is actually useful, actually making a difference on projects and actually making people's lives easier, they're gonna go for it. On each project, we look for that unique opportunity and present that to the clients and say, there's a bit of a research idea here. What would you say if we ran with this as a concept for now? or took you know, one of our projects, we looked at sourcing reused sinks. What if we ran that in parallel and just work through the process because we're going to fall down and we need to know where we're gonna fall down and we can use that on our next one. And I think they're really interested and engaged in the idea of contributing to this work and to advancing design, design approaches further. So that's really, really amazing to see. It's really excellent to hear you describe this in such an applied way. Your work on material passports won the unanimous acclaim of the AJ100 judges, and it's quite a technical area. So if we can break it down, firstly, can you just talk us through how the circular economy relates to buildings in a broad sense? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, So circular economy is about living within our planet's means. Whereas net zero is about preventing or now limiting the amount of climate change. When we look at existing buildings and circular economy, a lot of the time we we dismiss them because there's nothing we can do now. So usually when people talk about circular economy, they're looking at new buildings and they're looking at waste and not producing waste. It actually needs to be bigger than that. Imagine a world where I can't get any more new material. How do I build? That's the premise of a circular economy and that's why we've looked to existing buildings. So the work that I've been doing has been building on a lot of brilliant research thinking that's been happening over the past few years within Europe and the UK. And the overarching concept is buildings as material banks. So a building is a resource that can be mined. If it's a steel building, you could extract that steel and reuse it in another building or reuse it in the same building. Think of it as a Lego building. As an architect, when I come into my building, I need to think it's a material bank. I need to take apart all of my Lego pieces and I'm gonna reassemble my building with as many of these Lego pieces as I can. And then I might need some new Lego pieces, but I'll also have some pieces left over. And potentially we could trade those Lego pieces on a secondhand materials marketplace. 
So imagine a future world where we don't need to make a new steel beam because I could reuse 20% of the beams I had in my building. The remaining 80% I sold to the secondhand marketplace and I bought my new, in inverted commas, my salvage materials from that secondhand marketplace and reassembled them together into my new building. We don't have the procurement set up for it. How do we manage the contracts? How do we manage risk? How do we get materials out of buildings? And all of this comes down to material passport. So the idea with a passport is if you know exactly what that material is because it's been tagged or labeled in such a way that you're able to access information about it, then it will be able to be reused a little bit more. So in the same way that I have a passport, and if you scan my passport, you're gonna see my height, my eye color, my nationality, but also where I've traveled. That's the same premise for materials. I just want to say one thing, which is if you go to Orm's website, you can download a very readable PDF, which explains this in a bit more detail. We'll put a link in the show notes. So a BIM model of an existing building can be made to include information about what the building is made from. How does the material passport relate to that? You say that as if that's an easy thing to do. Oh yeah, we'll just make a BIM model of the existing building and just put all the info in there. What we have to be conscious of is a lot of the time we don't really know what our existing buildings are made from. And a lot of the thinking around material passports was always looking at new builds. So if you're building a new building, you know exactly where you've sourced those materials, capture that data somehow. And people look to BIM because it's a way of managing data. When you have an existing building, A lot of the time, you don't even have survey information when you're starting out. You probably have an agent's PDF that you start drawing off. So yes, we've looked at if we did enhanced surveys, what sort of info can we gather? And our approach actually focuses on building a database. So on day one, I might be able to go into a building and say, okay, well, I'm building my model and I know it's got four walls and I know it's got some external doors. I can see that they're glass external doors. Let me label them one, two, and three, and let me record them as glass doors. And maybe throughout the course of the design process, I'll uncover the original specification and know it's come from a particular manufacturer. And then I can go back and capture that information in the database. The database is quite important here because a lot of the time people are like, oh, just add that data into your BIM model. Anyone who works in Revit or in 3D modeling knows you have to keep them as lean as possible. So by setting up a separate database, there are ways that you can connect it to the model so the information can flow between the model and the database. The idea is, yes, you might start with your existing building and build a new model, or you might inherit a model from somebody else. And that would be nice. We're probably a few decades away from that. But if you were able to inherit a model, you're probably unfortunately going to have to rebuild a new one because that's how the softwares work. But potentially we could extrapolate info out of that, put it into the database, and then pull that info into our new model as and when we need it. So yes, you have a rough understanding of the materials within your existing as you move through the design process and it gets steadily more detailed and technical you're growing that database and then when i leave the project as a designer which is realistically end of stage five we're handing a client a model a supplementary database and the database is accessible without any fancy software so the cloud-based database that we've looked at using and i'm no database expert but the system that we looked at using the reason we picked it is because with an iphone you can scan a qr code 
it opens up one of the records, so a line out of that database is a separate view with a separate URL, so I can generate a QR code. And you can type in maintenance information, press enter, and then it's saved into the database. And our hope is that a facilities management person will be populating it, or it has an interface that it can interface with other web pages, and it has an interface that can, it can speak Excel. Whatever the management system is there, it could be integrated with that. Or worst case scenario, we get it back in 20 years and we go in and do a verification survey. Does that look like the original door? This is what it was supposed to be. It was meant to be a glass door. Well, it's now metal, so probably not. We need to figure out what happened there. That's the idea that existing buildings, we start to capture the information and then it grows. So the database is at the core of this circular built uh, cycle. So if the material passport is a record within a material database, how could that be used as a design tool for reusing materials? Because it gives me the information I need when I'm designing. So back to that Lego idea. We were looking at refurbishing our office. We need more meeting space because we've got loads of Teams meetings. Uh, So we were looking at making some new meeting rooms where we currently have some storage wardrobes, coat wardrobes, things like that. We're going to need to also develop some new joinery somewhere else in the office. So I designed my new joinery, thinking about what will be practical for us, what will we like. We're giving the office a facelift, do my ordinary design. Because I had gone through and tagged my existing materials and my model, I was able to say, okay, well, these materials or these wardrobes are not going to be needed anymore, but I need some new ones over there. So I had gone into our old record drawings. I had pulled out the original manufacturer's drawings and I put in some key information. I needed to know the finish on each of the wardrobes and the approximate sizes of them. I had done that a couple of weeks before. And when I came to specifying my new wardrobes, at this point we had decided that our current ones, we've unfortunately damaged a lot of the door fronts. So we can't refurbish them. But what we're going to do is put on a new door front, use the original carcassing and inserts and everything else. And I was able to open my database, have a beside my model and say, okay, well, I want one that's about 1200 wide. Ah, I have one that's 1150. That's fine. I can adjust my new design to accommodate that reuse because I know the exact reused wardrobe I'm going to use. This is the perfect scenario. If we don't know that we have this material to hand, so say we're hoping to source those wardrobes, we're going to have to be more flexible with our specifications. So I can say it's about 1200 mil wide, but if it's 1300, it could fit. If it's 1100, it could fit. And how will the design flex to accommodate that? It actually sounds quite challenging to I mean it's a different mindset wouldn't you say George yeah it is it is um the idea is if you've got a list of everything you could possibly use sitting beside you as you design by developing this approach where you can go in with that design thinking and you can go in with what will be best here as a designer but equally having a list of lego pieces beside you so you can say okay well I want a window could I use any of the windows I already have? Mm, Maybe I could. And I don't really have to compromise my design because it's a two centimeter adjustment. That's probably fine. And sometimes you'll look at your list and you'll say, "Ah, no, I'd really have to compromise the design to do this. But I now know that I've made this conscious design decision to specify a new material and I'm gonna work really hard elsewhere in my project to do better. 
And we do this even with our, our whole life carbon assessments. When we do our design options, we put up the carbon impact of each of the ceiling options or facade options. So our clients can make informed choices in the same way that the QS is going to put up the numbers of the actual cost. And sometimes the lowest carbon one is the most expensive. Sometimes it's the cheapest. Sometimes it's the middle one. So if a client has decided, well, that's out of my budget, I'll pick the second best carbon option, then somewhere else in the project, hopefully we'll be able to convince them that we don't need to invest in carbon here. We can go in with the low carbon option and it's within your budget, so let's do that. And usually it does kind of work out that way. So could material passports then facilitate this by being a sort of record of information so it goes beyond just what you're reusing from one site to what's available for salvage in in general so people would know if they need to specify what you were talking about wardrobes I don't have one existing but somebody else is getting rid of a carcass and 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 I've got enough information about that to be able to to specify that product. Yeah welcome to my brain. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) I'm a designer aka a dreamer so I picture these future scenarios all the time like What if we were able to do this? And everyone around the table looks at me and goes, oh, Rachel, how will we get there? But I think it needs a little bit of this pie-in-the-sky thinking. And sometimes you've got to throw enough ideas out there and some of them will stick. So my current pie-in-the-sky thinking around this is, imagine a world where in my Revit model, I mark my materials that I I don't think I'm going to need and they get sent off to a virtual material marketplace. So people could possibly trade on it or how do we earmark that this might be coming up in the future? There is a commercial platform for material passporting available called Modester. We're looking at how our database could plug into theirs and how we could extract info back out of their database in the future. But what they've been looking at is at a city scale, could we start to do that? Could we map it? A lot of people might be familiar with View City, which is an incredible piece of software that has modelled the entirety of London. And if you're doing your planning stages or your, oh, what are they called, verify views for planning, you can start to see how your building is going to look in the context of the future city because they have future planning applications also modelled. Imagine I could also provide some of the material data, but we could take Modaster's way of anonymising it for privacy So we could show, well, this part of London has a lot of brick in it, for example. And based on typical demolition and refurbishment cycles, we're anticipating that this volume of brick will maybe be available in 2030 or 2040. I think that's really, really powerful. So can we start to anticipate those material releases and then make sure that we're ready to incorporate them? That would be great because one thing that makes it quite difficult, you could be looking for, say, a steel staircase and it's like, well, ooh, you, see, you know, you find some on websites, but it's like, oh, how big is it? It's not really clear. So, yeah, material passport seems like it's something that could make it possible, really, to reuse a lot of components and, and materials generally. The, the overarching premise of a material passport is de-risking. We know we need to start reusing materials from existing buildings. Why aren't we? Well, the first thing is how we've put them into our buildings. Unfortunately, 50 years ago, we discovered glue and we've been gluing everything in place. So trying to get them out without damaging them is going to be really, really hard. The second thing is we also learned how to make things really, really cheaply. So when we get them out, even if they aren't damaged, it's probably cheaper to just demolish and buy a new one than it is to refurbish and and make this good again. But the third thing is risk. How do we make it safe. So if I said to you, oh, I'd like to reuse a sink, 
you'll probably say, yeah, it's fine. I mean, as long as the water stays in it. What if I said to you, I want to reuse a fire door? That's riskier now because how, like I couldn't in all conscience say to a client, oh, I'm, that looks like a fire door. Let's use that there. I need to be sure it's going to meet the rigorous safety standards that we have in place. So we need to work through this. And this is some of the ongoing work that happens in the the UKGBC research groups and some of the outreach that we're doing to suppliers. So all of the suppliers that we would deal with as a practice, I've thrown these ideas at them and said, hey, so imagine a world where I came back to you with your door with your product in 20 years time and said I'd love for you to refurbish it so it's a fire door do you just need to replace the fire seals and check the glass is still intact and check the integrity of the door and could you give it back to me with a warranty for another 10 years and a lot of the suppliers I mean it's not just doors it's everything they they all scratch their heads and go are you mad you really want that and I explain to them why and we are hoping within the UKGBC Circular Economy Programme, we're hoping to do this process of outreach to suppliers to explain these concepts, to explain why we're asking for them and to see and get their perspective because we know we can't do it all alone. We have to do it together. We have to do it as an industry and we have to help each other out. So if I know the limitations on their business side, I can then come at them maybe with a slightly better proposal Okay, maybe I won't ask you to take back another supplier's door, but maybe I'll just focus on asking you to take back your own. And then I've got to make sure that that door, the information pertaining to that door always stays with that door. We know exactly who that supplier is so we can go back to the right people and ask them to take it in and refurbish it. This is just excellent that you're going to engage with the supply chain on this. It's, It's just so important. You've mentioned the work you're doing on your own office. Are there other live projects where you're being able to trial this? Yeah, small scale. Building an entire database for an entire building will take forever. (laughs) So we're still in the demonstrator world. So it's actually being trialed on a lot of different projects, not ORMS projects. And our hope is in the coming year that we'll be able to share these case studies. Well, the only thing I can say is, you know, I've watched over the last decade how the discussion about embodied carbon has gone from people I could count on one hand to an industry understanding. That doesn't mean we've cracked it, but at least the awareness is there. So I think you're onto something that likewise in the next three to five years, we're going to hear more and more about. Hopefully. (laughs) That would be amazing. It's kind of reminded me of the episode where we um, spoke to Barnabas Calder about energy and and architecture and about how before industrialization for example the stones of ancient rome would get reused to be the material of of later buildings it seems like there's an opportunity through this technology to go back to a a more reusing um, materials way of building which is really great it's how we built before this is the thing that everyone seems to forget we tied ourselves up in knots a little bit around the whole who risk um, and sometimes, yes, it's incredibly important to make sure that all of the safety requirements are being met. But often we trip ourselves up because we want testing and certification when actually a simple visual inspection is perfectly adequate. And I'm going to take domestic architecture as an example of this. Last year, we were refurbishing a house that my mum bought and there were already material shortages because of COVID and general issues with getting materials to Ireland. And 
The builder that came in is a very small scale builder. He does extensions and, and refurbishments. We had taken down some of the internal partitions to start to visualize the space and had stacked all of the, the timber framing against a wall. And he was like, can I reuse that? Because I can't get that at the moment. I was like, yeah, 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 be my guest. And he was like, brilliant. And he sort of like picked it up and looked it up and down and tapped it against the wall and said, yep, that's grand. I'll use that again. And when the director said he had a funny conversation with a friend of his who's a domestic builder. And for years, he's been taking out materials that are perfectly good out of houses. And he's got a small warehouse and he's been storing them there because it saves him money. He doesn't have to pay for the carting off costs to landfill or to recycling facilities. And then he doesn't have to purchase it. And if they run out of something on site, well, He's got some in the warehouse. So I have a funny feeling that this has been happening just at small scale. But in the world of commercial architecture, we just got very careful about things. And it's right to be careful. But we need to also realise that we might be tripping ourselves up. And there may be opportunities for us to say, what can we retest? What do we need to retest? Do we really need to retest every single element? Or can we take a view on certain things and hopefully with that approach, we'll be able to move faster. Another place where I've seen this happening is in Detroit, Michigan, you know, where there were so many houses that were vacant. And there was a a small company that started dismantling these houses and salvaging the materials and established a small marketplace. Yeah, I think that's our ambition. At the moment, we have the likes of the great estates trying to within these UKGBC working groups, share materials between their own projects. And the estates are really interesting because they have this view of custodianship. They are in charge of this estate for future generations and they need to be doing the right thing. And I think that thinking is now also rolling over into the developer mindset as well, because everyone keeps saying to me, have you got a case study of this? And no, I don't have that perfect case study. There's lots of case studies about circular economy out there where people have built these beautifully dismantled buildings. And we we joked yesterday in uh, one of the working group meetings that they're such nice buildings, no one's taken them apart. <laughs> we can't We can't actually say, well, yeah, that worked. But the more projects like this that we can get in place and the more learning we can do, and that will start to demonstrate to the supply chain that there is actual interest in this secondhand materials marketplace and hopefully bring people out of the woodwork who will put their hands up and say, okay, we want to be the supplier that takes back this material. Or do we need you know, salvage yards effectively? And instead of the steel going back to the steel manufacturers, the steel goes to the salvage yards where they do the testing and grading. And you just come to them and say, I need a performance grade of this and a visual grade of this. What have you got in what stock sizes? I was thinking about reuse in this way, change your perspective on what new materials to use. And do you advocate for different materials or different ways for them to be put together? You'd mentioned glue before and avoiding that. Can we mechanically fix question number one question number two is this material going to have value in 20 years time perfect example you're specifying marble it is a beautiful natural material can you specify it in such a way that it could be reused somewhere else please because with the best one in the world the client may change their mind they don't want their marble wool anymore so can we design it a shower is obviously very challenging because it's got to be waterproof but if it's going into reception space for example a lot of the time it is clipped in place and you could lift it out and you could reuse it somewhere else. But can we apply that thinking to everything that we do? Please can we spec good quality, built to last, 
and disassemblable, so able to take out and as easily as possible. And can we record that somewhere? And that's the deconstruction plan template that we've been developing in one of the working groups. The idea is it captures very high level thinking. So if you want to dismantle the reception, please refer to that drawing and it'll explain where all those secret fixings are hidden so that a demolition contractor can come in and deconstruct as opposed to demolish or strip out. And then in terms of new, new, if you're investing in these new materials, can we make sure that they've been designed with circularity in mind? So I'm thinking of components here. The lighting industry has been brilliant on picking up on this concept of circular economy. So can they design for refurbishment? The big one for us, the big ticket, high body carbon, not designed to last, is windows, facades, glazing. We have we invest very high carbon in aluminium framing and in glass, and quite rightly, because they're external and they need to withstand the elements and not look terrible in five years' time and therefore want to be replaced. But the issue is that in 20 years' time, the seals are going to fail. And we take out those windows and we dispose of them and we put in new because the rubber seal has gone. So can we please find a way of taking them out? And I know there's a couple of examples, but there need to be more. These manufacturers hopefully are going to start stepping up soon as well to say, okay, we can refurbish that seal and put it back in. So that component has been designed in such a way that can be reused in the future. I want to ask you one last question. So how did you get switched on to this agenda? When did the... When did the light bulb go off for you that we have to start doing things differently? I think it began when I was at university. My university shared campus with sustainability research and there were some really brilliant lecturers that lectured in the architecture courses. And Were you in Dublin? Yes, I was in Dublin, University College Dublin. My first job with a practice in Dublin ABK Architects led to, they were working on the, what is now the Centre for Circular Economy in Ireland, but was an EU-funded research project where the idea was the building was a teaching tool. So they looked at all of these crazy innovative techniques like hempcrete and reusing louvers on the original building and crimping them into cladding. And it has lots of different ways of building. And the idea is you walk around this building and you learn about construction and sustainable design. So that was really interesting. And then I moved to New York and I worked in a practice on a project that was Passive House in the luxury residential marketplace, which in the States is incredibly challenging, but they did it. And then I came to Orms and Orms have been reusing existing buildings for a very, very long time. And our thinking in the past few years has been, okay, we we feel fundamentally our instinct is right, that we reuse as much as we can, but it would be great to be able to get some data to support that. And that's where that interest in Life Carbon came about. And we, we started up our sustainability research group and started going to these industry events and bringing back these ideas. And I think the great thing about Orms as a practice is we are very design-led, but research-based. So extensive research goes into every single project and maybe to touch on as a as a final point the the challenges around refurbishment and retrofit you know the aj has a brilliant campaign about retrofit first but sometimes buildings just aren't suitable uh, for refurbishment sometimes you can fall in a real gem like we did with the standard and we were able to take a really challenging building but the client went out and found the right operator for that building and the standard hotel absolutely love that space and that building has a new lease of life 
But equally, we've worked on buildings where it doesn't matter how many ways you skin it, the floor to ceiling heights just aren't going to work. You're going to be forcing people to work in completely electrically lit and mechanically ventilated spaces. And is that the kind of thing you want to be doing? Or the structure is degrading. And we need to be conscious that sometimes we do have to go for a new build, but everyone should always start with the refurbishment first. So can you retrofit it? Make sure you've done those assessments, you've done those feasibility studies. And if the ultimate decision is it's not possible, well, that's where I'm hoping now this material reuse piece is going to come in. Could we mine that building? Can we take out those Lego pieces and reconfigure it? We have some new builds that have completed and we're already looking at them and saying, what would we have done differently? Well, now we have the knowledge and hopefully the upcoming technology that in future scenarios, we'll be able to take out some of those materials that weren't working in their current configuration and we might be able to reconfigure them. And I think that's a really important conversation to be having as an industry because we should be reusing as much as we possibly can, but we need to acknowledge that sometimes we need to reuse it in a new way. I don't know if you were able to catch any of the RIBA uh, Built Environment Summit, but there was one session in which two demolition contractors were interviewed and they were talking about, I mean, you know, the industry has a long way to go, but the fact that they were there and wanting to engage with this, I thought was hugely positive. I spoke at the demolition conference this year, the National Demolition Conference, and my opening line was, I think you should wind down the demo industry and open up a deconstruction, open up as a deconstruction contractor. And I kind of thought I was going to be thrown out. But they were really, really interested and engaged because what I was saying is, you guys have the knowledge. You have the knowledge of how we've built our buildings. And this is where the idea of the deconstruction plan came around. And then we realized, actually, there's loads of really great guidance out there. We should signpost to it, but why isn't it happening? And we went to the demolition industry and interviewed a number of demolition contractors and the head of the National Federation of Demolition Contractors and said, what are we missing? What could we be doing better? How can we support your work? Why aren't you deconstructing and reusing? And how can we encourage this to happen? And a lot of them said, oh, well, no one's ever asked us to, or it's a program thing. We might be asked to deconstruct and reuse, but at the end of the day, we're being judged on program. Another thing that has been really interesting is speaking with demolition contractors about, can we get them in as a, as a consultant on the design team? So as we're designing our buildings, can you advise us on what mistakes we're making when we make them? And can you also do pre-demolition audits? Let's pull them early because what they're doing is quantifying the amount of material in the existing building. I can now try and use that as the foundation for my material database and then design that material back in. And if I have a demolition engineer as a consultant on the project, they could advise, well, that's going to come out really easily, that will come out really easily, that, 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 I'm probably going to destroy in the process. So we can be a little bit more strategic about where we focus our energy. And when we come to them, because unfortunately we come to them probably end of stage four, when the design is very much set and we're going out to tender on the demolition, it doesn't matter at that point if they've got these great ideas because it's going to just derail the project. So can we take their expertise and plug it in early enough in the conversation that we can actually do something with it? Um, so yeah, demolition industry is an untapped resource, I think, for, for designers. Fantastic. Thank you, Rachel. I'll be very interested to see where you take this next. Well, I suppose 
Shout out to everyone I work with because it's not a me job, it's an everyone job. There's a lot of people working really hard on this and I know that we've got the right people in the room, but equally if there's someone out there that's listening and says, I have a really great idea, we'd love to hear from you. In our next episode, we'll be speaking to curator Justin McGurk about Wastage, an exhibition currently on show at the Design Museum, and Future Observatory, a national research program launched at COP26, which will explore how design can address pressing issues such as delivering net zero and the housing crisis. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.